O God, whose blessed Son came into the world, that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life. Grant that, having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure, that when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom, where he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, November the 7th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We've got um, some interesting lessons. I mean, I always find Ruth to be a fascinating um, book, and I've been doing a every other Wednesday night kind of a thing where I'm, I'm just teaching a little bit and with some good friends and kind of going through the book to see you know, kind of what might be there and what I might be able to do with it as far as maybe writing something on my own, actually, and um, doing an extended sort of video teaching on it, bringing in the Jewish sources and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, it's been a good week of looking at that. It's been kind of a, a week of, of contrast and change because it's um, we're coming into, really into fall now. We've had a couple of really chilly nights and a couple of cool days, and it's, it's been a nice week. We've... Uh, not a whole lot going on this week, just um, getting things done and kind of moving forward and thinking a lot about the future and talking a lot about the future. But, you know, we haven't made any firm plans or whatever. And so we're, um, I think we're in a season of waiting here at our house. And uh, it, it's been a long season of waiting, but but I think we're coming towards the end of it. And uh, it's it's been, it's been a good week. There's been a lot going on. It's been pretty busy, but, um, but it's been a, a good week. I think that uh, beginning to do some new things as far as workouts concerned. Got Suzanne doing some new things as far as workouts are concerned, and so it, it's been it, that's been a good thing. We have we haven't been able to get out as much this week because we've just been busy. But other than that, it's been good. Um, like I said, nothing exciting. Just kind of rocking along, moving along, and getting ready to to start some new things, which is always exciting to me. I was this morning, as I frequently do when I'm looking at, um, sermon stuff, I I will look because it's just an old, old habit. I'll go to the history channel site and see what was in, you know, the, the day in history kind of stuff. And so this morning I was looking at it and yesterday was a day that Abraham Lincoln was elected actually as for the first time. And so I went back and just sort of read through his first inaugural address, uh, which is fascinating. I would highly recommend it, actually. He, but he, what he goes into is pretty great detail about covenants, and particularly the covenant that was established with the Constitution primarily. Um, he, but he says that, that it's really that didn't establish the covenant. The covenant was established before that. It was established in 1774. And and then that the Constitution just ratified the existing uh, agreement between the states, and that's the covenant I'm talking about—the covenant that the states made one with another. And and his argument, as he um, makes it in that first inaugural address, is is that it's not possible for one of two parties to a contract. And he says it's a, been a perpetual contract, and its intention is to be a perpetual contract that it can't be dissolved unilaterally. So one party can't decide we no longer have that uh, agreement with one another and can't just walk away. He, he, he makes some arguments about what would 
or potentially would bring about a dissolution of the bonds that were established in the Constitution. And what he, what he says is that if one party attempts to force the other party to do things against the Constitution, then, then it tries to impose laws or whatever that, that go against the Constitution itself, then he says there would be grounds for talk about a separation and divorce. But, but he says such has not occurred uh, at the time. And so uh, he, he says, so there's no legitimate reason for separation. And he says, you know, basically then, because we're in covenant with one another, then, then it can be enforced, that the covenant itself can be enforced if one party tries to unilaterally break that covenant. And the thing is, is that that, that describes almost perfectly <laughs> the situation we have with respect to uh, not only the church and God, but also the, the Jewish people and God. These are indissoluble covenants, and so that you can't just unilaterally walk away from that covenant without any um, punishment. <laughs> is the best way to say it, I guess. And so I, I'm thinking about that a lot and thinking about what does it mean to be in covenant and what does it mean to be fully in covenant, because that's that's the honest way of looking at that covenant, the, the covenant that we've made, the covenant in baptism, for instance, or the covenant in confirmation, which, depending on your, you know, your uh, religious denominational kind of um, prerequisites, I guess, would be a way, one way to say it, but, but it depends on how your denomination works. I mean, for us, in the Anglican world, what, what happens is at baptism, you, you enter into a covenant at baptism, but those covenant vows, if you do it as an infant, obviously you can't make those covenant vows yourselves, um, so your parents make them for you. But then at the same time, the church makes covenant vows when you're baptized to make sure that, that we have vowed before the Lord that you would be raised in such a way that you would not um, be ignorant of the, the covenant. And, and not be ignorant of the gospel, and that you would come when you came of age where you could make a decision for yourself, then you would ratify your participation in the covenant community by going through confirmation. And in other denominations, it's baptism is that entrance into the covenant community. You've been sort of a ward of the state or the ward of the church until that such time as you can make that declaration on your own. So the purpose of a bar mitzvah is when a child is old enough to read, a male child uh, is old enough to read the law in Hebrew, and he, he does that in front of a congregation of people, and they, they hear him recite that law in Hebrew. And so now he has become a full member of the covenant community. He was always a member of the community by virtue of um, his circumcision. But now he becomes a legally responsible person for that. And so that's where you get the age of accountability kind of an idea. But this entering into the covenant, and when you enter into the covenant, what, what is the— um, the purpose and the point of it is to point towards um, you're all in, that that you're not um, keeping a foot in two different kingdoms because God's either king of your life or he's not. He's either Lord or he's not. And sometimes the only way that we can truly know that is to be in a place where reduced to a place especially in a prosperous nation like America, to be reduced to a place where we no longer have control. When we're completely out of control and we can't determine what's going to happen next, and 
everything feels chaotic and helpless and hopeless and lost and confusing. And that's when we come to a place where we finally can realize that, that he is Lord. Because in spite of the fact that we can't control anything going on in our lives at any given point in time, like we had to deal with with Will's whole situation, then then when we come to that place is the place and the time when we can we can say, you're Lord, and, and I can't do anything. I'm absolutely hopeless, but you are in control of all things. We believe in the omnipotence of God, and then we also believe in the goodness of God, no matter what. And so we can come to that place. And so what we're going to see here is, is what we have to just come to a place where we can just trust him because we have nothing else to trust in. When we come to the end of our rope, then we, that's where we find God. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes us a long time to get to the end of our rope because well, let me just try this. Let me just do that. Let's pursue it this way. And, and we run out of options ultimately. And then finally we get on our knees and we, we, we say, oh, yeah, we've prayed all along. But yes, we did. But we did we wait on the Lord to act or have we tried to uh, make things happen on our own? And, and that's sort of what happens here is, is that sometimes that the, that the way forward can seem strange. And what you can see finally, though, is, is that, that somebody who, who decides I'm going to go all in, I don't have any other hope. But the Lord's shown me a place where I can have hope, and I'm going to trust him no matter what. And so that's what you see kind of in this Ruth lesson, for instance. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? That's been Naomi's prayer right from the first when she tried to get Ruth and Orpah to go back home to Moab to their people and their gods, was just that you'll, you'll never have rest. And what she's thinking, as far as rest is concerned, is to have a husband who will look over you, watch over you, and protect you, and provide for you, and um, th- then you can have children. And that's what she wants. This is the rest that she wants, because she's had Ruth out in the fields day after day because they're, they're impoverished, and so they, they go in the fields. She goes in the fields every day and, and gleans whatever the, the, the men don't pick up. And so the rest she wants for her is for her to have a husband and for her to be provided for so that she's not out there in the fields every day. And she says, isn't Boaz, our relative, with whose young women you were. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. It's the end of the harvest, and now the, the it, it would be the Feast of Shavuot, um, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates the ingathering. And so he's winnowing barley. The harvest is done, and now he's, he's finishing the harvest by winnowing the barley. So he's separating the, the grain from the chaff. And so it's a big day, and it's a, it's a day of a festival and a party and all that kind of stuff because the hard work of the harvest is done, and now we can begin to reap the rewards of that harvest. She says, wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies there, go and uncover his feet and lie down and he'll tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. And so there's just what she's setting up is she's watched and seen what Boaz has done in order to, to provide for both Ruth and through Ruth to Naomi as well. And so there's a covenant that he has established 
this covenant of protection and provision that he's established already. And now she's saying, we want to formalize that. We want to take that to the next level. This man has done all these kinds of things. He can be the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer that's provided for in Scripture whenever there are widows involved. And so in order to make sure that there's a, there's a perpetuation of the line of the one who has died, then somebody else is intended to step up into this leveret marriage, to, to take on the responsibility of these women, and then to provide an heir as well. And so she's, she said that Boaz's actions have pointed things in this direction. Let's sort of move this process along. You go in there, you find him after he's gone to sleep, you uncover his feet. There's a, uh, that's part of the whole sort of um, dance of courtship towards marriage and all this kind of stuff. He would have awakened and and found this woman lying there at his feet and and would have come to an odd conclusion possibly. But so that we skip over a whole lot. But what I want to point to here is the covenant language that's in this. And as I said, Naomi is pointing to the fact that, that Boaz seems to be establishing a covenant relationship. Well, there's a biblical covenant relationship that can be established through this as well and is intended to be. Let's see if Boaz will be a righteous man. And he'll do more than simply say, okay, you can glean among the sheaves. Let's see if he will be a redeemer. And so, so he, she said, this looks like a covenant in process, and so let's see. Let's, let's go hold his feet to the fire, sort of. And, and the interesting response that Ruth says is she, doesn't, she can't possibly know all these things on her own, the Jewish laws of redemption and all that kind of stuff. And so, but what she's seen is in action the kindness of Boaz. But the, the, it's, a, it, it's a kindness that's commanded in the law, but it seems to be more than that for Boaz. It seems to be the man's character. And so here what we see is, is that, that her response to that is, all that you say I will do. It's a fascinating response for a Moabite woman because the reason I say that is because if you look at Exodus 19 and Exodus 24, what you'll see is, is that first in, in Exodus 19, 3 to 8, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and says, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all my nation, all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is before the giving of the law. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and sat before them, set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So it's the Israelite response to the offer of a covenant relationship with the living God. And it's exactly what Ruth says here, all that you've spoken I will do. So she's using the same covenant language that the, the Jewish people used at Mount Sinai. You see it again in, 20, in Exodus 24, 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, because they had asked him to be their, their uh, mediator between them and the Lord, after he gave the Ten Commandments, they said, okay, from now on, hear about this. How about you go speak to him? We're afraid. 
So he goes up and he gets the law and he comes back and their response is everything the Lord has said we will do. And then later in 24-7, after he gets the book of the covenant, he reads it to the people and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. And so it's exactly the same thing Ruth says here to her mother-in-law. I don't understand all this. I don't know what the end of this looks like. I have no earthly idea what I'm doing, but I'll do what it is because I trust you. And I'm in relationship with you, and she's in covenant relationship with her. Remember what it said was that she clung to her mother, which is cleaving, which is the language of covenant marriage, that, that you'll cleave to your wife. You'll leave your mother and father, and you'll cleave to your wife. And so here, what she's done is she has cleaved to Naomi until such time as she has her own husband. And so Naomi's job is to connect her with her husband so that she might then be in covenant relationship with that husband. But this is all based on the Sinaitic covenant, the language and everything that's going on is. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. This is the end. After all this happens, she does what Naomi said. And because she did what Naomi said, now she has a husband. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women of Bethlehem said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. In other words, you, you lost two sons and a husband, Naomi, but wow! This Moabite woman, Ruth, who is your daughter-in-law, she loves you, and she's more to you than seven sons. So two extraordinary people in here. The one who is the redeemer, the restorer of life, and the nourisher of the old age, Boaz, his name is to be renowned in, in Israel. But not just that, even more, you have a daughter-in-law who loves you and who is more to you than seven sons. So in other words, she makes up in spades for what you lost. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So he is, he is replacing this Obed, this, this one who will be the father of Jesse. The grand, he will be the grandfather of King David. And in the Messianic line, this Obed is the one who will give her restoration and life. And sure enough, Naomi finds her joy again. She goes from when she comes into Bethlehem with Ruth, they, they say, oh, isn't this Naomi, and her, which means pleasant. And her response is, no, 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 don't call me Naomi anymore. The Lord's made me bitter. Now just call me Mara, which means bitter. And so that she saw this as, as something the Lord had done to her. And now, though, it's not just Boaz who is the Redeemer and the Restorer and the Nourisher of old age. No, 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 it's God. It's the one who actually oversaw this whole thing. And, and so this, that's this covenant relationship that God ultimately, after the punishment that came when, when her husband Elimelech took the family and left uh, the land during a time of famine and went to Moab, there, there are multiple things wrong with doing that. One is you're, you're fleeing God at some level. And so the judgment of God came against this family. 
And, and you would have thought maybe that the judgment of God came against the family again in the, in the deaths of Malan and Killian, the sons. You would have thought maybe that was God's punishment for them marrying Moabite women, except for Ruth. So clearly that's not the problem. But, but God needed them to come back to the land, but she needed them, he needed them and oversaw the mistake of going to Moab to return with Ruth so that she could be the mother of Obed, the grandmother of Jesse and the great-grandmother of David, and then ultimately all the way down to Jesus. The covenant relationship with God, we can breach that covenant, we can break that covenant, we can walk away from it, but God's will will be done for those who are in covenant with him. might be painful. It's better if you do things the way Ruth did and the way things that the Israelites said they would do at Mount Sinai, which is all that you have spoken we will do. Now, we know what happened later in the case of the Israelites. We know that that only about 15 chapters after the covenant statement of we will all you spoken we will do then we know that they breached that covenant by creating new gods who brought them out of egypt but god maintains that covenant he didn't allow them to escape the covenant or its punishments but ultimately it it has the blessing of protection and provision and he is the redeemer Ultimately, and that's what you see in the story here of Ruth and Boaz, is that that if you do things, both of them did. They did things the way God said to do them. Boaz did the legal stuff that he was required to do in order to provide for Ruth, but then he went above and beyond the terms of the law. And, and here Naomi applies that same attitude towards the law. This man's bound to be a redeemer, and he's already proven himself to be a good man, so he, 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 we, I think we can expect him to do the right thing if you do these things. And so it's all in accordance with God's way and God's word. And then ultimately this great blessing comes into Naomi's life after these years of pain and toil and struggle and doubt that she's experienced. So in the gospel lesson, we see this same principle, and the principle that I'm giving you is, is that I'm all in, right? So in his teaching, this is in Mark 12, 38 to 44, Jesus said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So what Jesus has said is, is, is that these guys do all this for recognition in this world. That they get their reward in this world because that's what they're pursuing. They're pursuing the acclaim of the world. They like to be uh, lifted up and, and, and recognized all the time. And, and then after he finishes this, he sits down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Remember, these are pilgrims. These are pilgrims who have come in, in accordance with the keeping of the law to be in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And so these people have come to Jerusalem, and now they're making their offerings to the Lord when they're there. Many people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box." For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In other words, what she's saying is is that, that I have nothing to live on. I want to voluntarily live under God's mercy. 
I want to give away everything that I have because I so trust the Lord that he can have everything. That's the deepest love that you can even possibly imagine, right? To say, say, I believe in the covenant God made with us. I believe in the truth of all his promises. To the extent that I'm willing to go all in, I'm willing to put everything that I have to live on in the offering box and give it to him because I trust him so much. He has proven himself in spite of what others see. My poverty is nothing compared to my relationship with him. And so she's willing to put everything in. And you can just imagine what this looks like. It, it, it had to have been painful at some level, but it doesn't seem to have been. I mean, she just she goes in and puts everything in the plate and walks away in trust and love. And can we do that? You know, it's a hard thing to do. It's exactly what Jesus offered or asked the rich young man to do, and he was unwilling to do it. But you see, others who, like the disciples, who have walked away from everything, their careers and, and family and everything else, and gone to follow Jesus because they believed in him. It's, sometimes it's a lonely walk when you're going down a road that nobody else is going down, and other people are rejecting it and spurning it and, and making fun of you. It's like in the days of Noah. It's like in the days of Elijah. It's like, you know, all these things. It's hard to continue sometimes to follow the Lord because family will tell you, you've lost your mind. What are you doing? Why have you done this thing? Why are you walking away from a successful career or whatever in order to follow the Lord? No, that's just not the right way to go. And, and, and even then, when you do that, then it's like, have you lost your mind? Are you, you're going to go where? I'm going to go wherever the Lord tells me to go. Well, you can't do that. It's not safe there. And, and it's something we constantly, I believe, have to struggle with. And unfortunately, I believe that God continues to give us spaces and times in our lives when he says, I need you to go all in again. I need you to go all in again. It's like with Abraham, he waited 25 years for the fulfillment of the promise of the son, right? And then after he has the son, then, then many years later, God says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And he, he said, take your son, your only son, the one you love, and take him and sacrifice him to me in a place I'll show you. You know, I liked it better when you said you were going to take me to the land that you were going to show me that you were going to give to my descendants, you know. And so now, no, you want me to take him up onto a mountain and sacrifice him to you? But there was, Abraham didn't even flinch. He just did it. He got up early the next morning and saddled his donkey and took his slave, and they went to the mountain where God would show him. Sometimes when he tells us what to do, we, we don't like necessarily what he's calling us to do, but then... He goes with us on the path and goes with us on the way, and, and we, we can come to realize that there's something more important than money and security and all those kinds of things. There's this relationship with him where if I go with him, I get to see things that I would never otherwise have seen and do things I never, never otherwise would have done. I would never have thought that I would have spent you know, huge amounts of time in Rwanda and, and getting to know so many Rwandese and being, my life being so blessed by that. And it would never have happened if I'd continued on my previous uh, career path. So it's just been so many blessings in my life, people I've met that I would never have met had I not finally <laughs> said yes to the Lord. And so I, I, my life is richly blessed by all of this, no matter what the outward appearance might be, right? I mean, no matter whether I'm, I'm flush or, or broke, whichever it is, doesn't make any difference at the end of the day because God's giving me so much 
on a daily basis. And and so we, we have to be good at giving thanks for that and appreciating all that he's given us, but being willing always to go all in if he requires it. In the uh, epistle, what we see is Jesus, what was the result of his going all in and obeying the, the Father, even when he said, if it be your will, let this cup, you know, let this cup fall from my lips, <clears throat> but if it be your will, you know, I'll go and I'll do this thing. And, and he committed himself before he even came. He committed himself to the suffering and the pain of the cross and all that that entails. And so, but what's the payoff? And that's what Hebrews says. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So when Moses goes up to come before the Lord in uh, Exodus 19 and then again in Exodus 24, when he goes up by himself, then the, the people are perfectly willing for him to do that. They're willing for him to go and have an audience with God because they're afraid. And so what, what Jesus does is, and so they, they make the tabernacle so that there's a place to meet with God, and once a year, the high priest can enter into the Holy of Holies, to the holiest place, and make atonement for the sins of the people. But what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is that thing, that temple, that tabernacle, all, all that, that's, that, those are man-made things. They're representations and copies of the true things that are in heaven, which is very much platonic philosophy. That, but, it, but it is. It's, it's, at some level, that's exactly what it is. When you enter into the, the tabernacle and the temple, the, the intention was that you were entering into the Garden of Eden, which would be the place where the very presence of God would be. And so there, there was this in, intentional copying of the heavenly things. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is that Jesus didn't, not like a high priest, he didn't go into this copy, he went into the real thing. And that's what we see in the book of the Revelation, is that Jesus entered into the very presence of God. Not just where the mercy seat was, but no, the very presence of God, not his footstool to his throne. And it says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year, which is Yom Kippur, with blood not his own. And he spills it and throws it on the um, Ark of the Covenant to make sure that the judgments are still sealed, that that, pe- that God's people can be forgiven. He said, for then he would have to, had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. No, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, to fully establish the covenant, to say, I'm all in. As God, I'm all in on this covenant relationship, so much so that I did what I wouldn't allow Abraham to do, which is the sacrifice of my son. But it's a willing sacrifice that Jesus makes in order to put away sin, not just annually, but eternally. That's the going all in on the covenant. Here's the proof of it, is my son died and then he's raised from the dead, which is to say I accept his sacrifice for sin, not his sins, your sin. And it says, just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. My question, I guess, is are you eagerly waiting for him? And what's the proof of that? 
it's easy to answer the question, right? But then it's it's easy to answer the first part anyway. Are you eagerly anticipating and waiting for the coming of Christ? And we could all say at some level, yes. But then what's the proof that that's what you're eagerly waiting for? Or are you satisfied with what you have and where you are? Is God calling you to go go all in on this covenant thing? Well, he has. And the proof of that is the cross of Christ. And the love that God has for us to go to that cross and to suffer all the indignity and the shame and the rejection of that cross for us. And what he's saying is, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, reject and renounce everything else that hinders you from eagerly awaiting him. Lay it down like Ruth and said, all that you have spoken, we will do.